Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Now, just when you tell yourself that you couldn't love Martin Luther more, you get to his commentary on Zechariah 14, which we're about to embark on, and you find these words. Here in this chapter, Luther writes, I give up, for I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. I have to say, I admire that kind of honesty, and I wish we could all share in the boldness to admit when we're just not sure what's going on. And I will say at the outset, I will promise you that by the time we're done with Zechariah 14, uh, we will not have penetrated all of its mysteries, explained it all away. We will still be able to sympathize deeply with Martin Luther's words here. Because if you look at the text that we've just read, there's a lot going on, and that's only half of it. There's still the last half of chapter 14 to confront as well. But there's so much happening that it's hard to know exactly what's going on. At moments, it seems as if Zechariah is prophesying a great defeat, a tragic catastrophe. But at other times, it sounds like he's talking about a great victory instead. All of the images and the themes that recur over and over again in Old Testament prophecy here all show up and get mixed in together. It's like you see everything that's talked about elsewhere suddenly appearing, getting a a brief moment in Zechariah 14. You start to wonder, is this sacking of the city that's being described, is that a literal thing? Is that the kind of prophecy that would be fulfilled when, for example, the Romans come and, and trash the city of Jerusalem and destroy the temple? Or is it a spiritual thing? Is it talking about something else that we have to read symbolically. There are a lot of questions here to unpack, and it's no surprise that Luther found the task daunting. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we too will find the task daunting. So we will proceed in humility. We will proceed in caution and strive to get the big picture, strive to understand that the major themes that take place in this final oracle of Zechariah. To do that, I think it helps to go back to the beginning. If you remember, back at the very beginning of this sermon series, we were asking ourselves what it would be like to be returned exiles, to be in the first generation that came back to Jerusalem to see the city in a state of ruin, and to realize your task was to try to rebuild that. The question that people had in those days that they were asking their leaders, they were asking their prophets, was, Will God restore the glory of Jerusalem? Will this ruin one day be transformed into something glorious? That's what they wanted to know. Is it it worth it, the work that we've been called to do? So they asked that question, and it's a question that we continue to ask. Will God restore the glory of Jerusalem? Because you have to remember that word Jerusalem is interesting. Because Jerusalem is not just a place on a map. The meaning of the word Jerusalem in Hebrew is city of peace or city of shalom, Jerusalem. And peace in Hebrew is not just the absence of war, the absence of conflict. Peace is wholeness. Peace is fullness or completeness. So Jerusalem is literally the city of peace, the city 
of wholeness and fulfillment. Will that city be restored? Will God restore the glory of the city of peace? Of course, in the prophetic ministries of Haggai and Zechariah, the answer is not only will God restore Jerusalem, but He will restore it far beyond its former glory. He's actually going to make it much more glorious than it ever was before. We've seen that in these prophets' words. The city of peace will surpass the old physical city of Jerusalem. But we've also seen a shift in focus. Although the people are rebuilding a physical city, more and more we begin to see that it is a spiritual city that God's promises are talking about. That there is a Jerusalem that goes beyond the city limits, so to speak, in the nation of Israel and encompasses something much more. In the days of Jesus, Jesus, when He enters triumphantly into Jerusalem, remember where He goes. We talked about this earlier. He goes straight to the temple. But He doesn't make a sacrifice there. He doesn't do something to sort of initiate His reign over the physical city of Jerusalem. He purifies it. He, he casts out the money changers. And then He leaves. And then He departs. And in the ministry of Jesus, there's this constant emphasis on a different temple, the temple of His body, in contrast to the physical temple that other people put their hopes in. The new Jerusalem, in other words, would not be the city that the exiles were rebuilding. The new Jerusalem would be the city that God built, using His people as the bricks and His own Son as the cornerstone. That is the city of peace that Zechariah prophesies here. Zechariah has shown us all of these things. He's shown us many pictures of what is to come that we see fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus and in the life and ministry of the church. And now in chapter 14, he gives us a picture of Christ's second coming, Christ's final return. Not just a picture, but what you might think of as a pattern for the second coming. Now, it's a pattern, of course, through symbolism, through images. But it's a pattern, nonetheless, that we will see fleshed out in the New Testament. Right? This is a pattern that shows us the church besieged and sacked. It shows us the Savior returning in power. And it shows us the kingdom coming in its fullness at long last. So those are the things we're going to look at in this first half of Zechariah 14. The sack of the city the Savior of the city, and the Sovereign over the city. We'll start with the sack of the city because that's where the vision begins. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from this city. Now here, a catastrophe is foretold. The sacking of the city under siege, its inhabitants put to the sword, used mercilessly. We saw already in chapter 13 in the last oracle that the sheep would be scattered and that Jesus would call those scattered sheep into the church, that the church would be our refuge. But now in the final oracle, you see that Jerusalem itself is besieged. It is 
under attack. Even that refuge crumbles and falls under the pressure of that attack. It finally succumbs, God says. Jerusalem falls. The city is taken and its houses plundered. You see a division within that defeat. There's half of the city that goes out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off. So what we might imagine here is the kind of siege that is fought tenaciously inch by inch. One bastion falls after another so that the city is invested and and partially overtaken, and yet there is a, 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 a group preserved, a group not carried off that continues to struggle within the city. This is a picture of our struggle, and it's a desperate one. It's a, it's a terrible one to contemplate. In the ancient world, there was no greater catastrophe that could befall your people than for your city to resist siege and then to fall. Because the convention was, if you resist us, when we defeat you, the ordinary rules no longer apply, and we are free to do whatever we want to do to you for a period of time. That's the image that we have here of the end of our struggle. But remember, our warfare is spiritual. Ours is a spiritual warfare, not a physical one. The prophecy here is using physical images and symbols, but to describe a spiritual reality. So it's not that we should be looking for a time when all of us together find ourselves rallied behind physical walls and under physical attack. We should understand this siege as a spiritual one. Having said that, though, it's important to recognize that the events that are being spoken of here are real events, not metaphorical events. These are real things that will happen in the future, but they're being described symbolically. And so they're more complex to interpret than if they were being given to us literally. So how should we understand the fall of the city or the fall of the church. Well, there's two aspects here. First, uh, one, the defeat and punishment that we see here represents a judgment upon the church for its sins. When we look back at the history of this city that God is building, this is a city that is full of idolatry, full of corruption, Some of the worst things that you will ever witness, some of the worst people that you will ever meet, you will meet in the church. Some of the worst things you will ever suffer, the worst betrayals you will ever have to endure, you will endure in the church. And because of that sin, there is judgment, there is punishment that is brought upon the church. When we suffer, we cannot always say we're suffering for Jesus because we're such good people. Because oftentimes we suffer for our sins. But there's another aspect here. As we saw before, suffering, travail like this, comes to us in the form of a test that's meant to purify us. The siege, the embattled nature of the church is meant to purify the church. So that when you see half taken away and half remaining, you can imagine, yes, apostasy in the face of judgment, but also purification. 
in the presence of suffering. That the church, through this suffering, is clinging to Christ and remaining faithful. One question you have to ask yourself when you see this catastrophe unfolding is, why is God doing this? Because you see here, God says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. It seems as if if you're going to protect Jerusalem, maybe a good way of doing that would be not to gather all of the nations, not to, to group all these people together. You know, over the course of history, over the course of time, there are many people who rise up against the city of peace. But on that day, God brings them all together at once. What was bad before seems unbearable now. The whole of the opposition of the world focused on this city. Why would you do such a thing? Well, the reason you gather all your enemies together in one place is so that you can defeat them all one last time, once and for all. The reason that God gathers all his enemies together in one place is so that he can crush them. Remember the way that Jerusalem is described in chapter 12 of Zechariah as a cup of staggering, as a heavy stone that will will hurt anyone who tries to lift it, a desirable drink that intoxicates anyone, overcomes anyone who actually grasps the cup. Well, that's what we see here. God is bringing together all those who oppose him, turning all of them against his church so that in their aggression, they can be once and for all overcome. And that's the sack of the city, but it's not the final word for the city because the Savior of the city appears thereafter. We read, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. You shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Now, as I said, when we're reading Zechariah 14, one of the complexities is that a lot of prophetic images all make an appearance here, all kind of interconnected. So let me give you a few of these themes. Some of them we've seen a lot of in Zechariah. Some of them you would see more of in other prophets. But just to kind of give you a sense for everything that is converging here. Uh, first, there's the day of the Lord. Over and over again, the prophets speak of a day that is coming, a day of victory and judgment where the Lord will execute justice. There's also the theme of the Davidic king, the monarch who comes in the line of David, who will rule over the people. The divine warrior, the idea that God will fight for his people against their enemies. There's also a theme, a surprising theme to us oftentimes to find in the Old Testament, that there will be a judgment on the nations that will lead to their salvation. And yet the prophets testify to this. That those who are not God's people will become God's people through this process of judgment, which we see in Zechariah 14 as well. Also, streaming waters of renewal, the idea of salvation being like a cleansing river that flows out of the temple, out of the city of God. 
We'll find that here in our text as well. The idea that God will restore the fortunes of Jerusalem, that he will glorify the city that so many others have sought to tear down, and God's defense of the royal city, that no one will prevail in their struggle against Jerusalem. All of these things, which you will find over and over again in the Old Testament prophets, all make an appearance in this final vision of Zechariah, of the end of everything, the summation of all of God's plan. And the heading that you could file all of these fulfillments under is the second coming, the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he left the earth in his ascension, he left from a certain location. If you go to the book of Acts and you read in Acts chapter 1 about the ascension, Jesus goes up. And then the apostles return to Jerusalem and they leave from the site of the ascension, which is the Mount of Olives. And so Zechariah is saying that the place where you saw him leave, you will see him return to. And what's happening in Zechariah 14 is his return to the Mount of Olives. And when he returns, the mountain splits open. It splits wide. And that should make you think of something from earlier in our look at Zechariah, remember in the last of the night visions, when we talked about the two bronze pillars and how they correspond to the pillars outside the temple and that symbolically these represent the feet and legs of God standing upon the earth. This is the idea here as well. God sets foot on the earth and his uh, footprint, so to speak, divides the mountains. You can imagine one foot on either side a center now of his presence through which salvation will flow and escape from every struggle is found by passing between the two sides, by passing into the center of his presence. That cleft in the mountain makes a way of escape for God's people. There's a historical reference here to an earthquake in the days of King Uzziah. That's mentioned also at the beginning of Amos. Amos's prophetic ministry begins two years prior to this earthquake, so it was a big catastrophe. But people had this memory that at that time when it seemed like everything was being shaken and everything was being destroyed, there was a way of escape that God opened up. And now the same thing when it seems like everything is dire. It seems like there is no escape when every hand is turned against us and inevitably the city must succumb. Instead, the Savior steps onto the scene and makes a way of escape and then does more than that. He brings his reign into fullness. In your order of worship, there's a longish quote from uh, Richard Phillips. Uh, I recommended his commentary, along with several others at the beginning of this series, for those of you who want to dig deeper, who want to kind of get into the symbolism more, if you've been reading along in those commentaries, this may already be familiar to you, but I want to read it to you because I think it does a good job of showing the historical progression that we've seen in the last few chapters of Zechariah. He says, Zechariah 14 completes the historical progression that we followed all through these final oracles that began in chapter 9. They start with the centuries to come shortly after the restoration of Jerusalem, including the conquest of Alexander and the Maccabean Wars of the Jews. The great bulk of these prophecies then focus on the coming of the true king, his rejection by the people, and God's subsequent judgment on Jerusalem. 
But then the cleansing of many who look on the one they had pierced and are saved, which takes place in our present gospel age. As we follow the progression of redemptive history, the next great event after the first coming of Christ and the spreading of the gospel is his second coming to vindicate his beleaguered people, judge the earth and bring his eternal reign of blessing and peace. That is what chapter 14 brings to our view. Not just broad principles about life in this world, and not the beginning of a thousand-year political reign of Christ centered on the earthly city of Jerusalem, but the end of all things in the consummation of God's eternal city in purity and peace. And when he writes the end of all things there, think of end in the shorter catechism sense. When the catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? It doesn't mean end in the sense of of done. It means end in the sense of goal or telos, purpose. That the fulfillment, the culmination of all things happens in the consummation of God's eternal city in purity and in peace. And that's what this vision of Christ's coming is all about. And as the oracle continues, we see what it means for Christ to be sovereign over the city. Things start changing in wonderful and miraculous ways. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But in evening time, at evening time, there shall be light. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Remen, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanano to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. The unique day that is described here, no light, cold, or frost, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. You start reading those things and it's difficult not to think about the new Jerusalem vision that John has at the end of Revelation. That place where God's presence is our light and there's no need for sun or moon. Here Zechariah describes in these words. In fact, it's worth turning there. It's worth looking at the book of Revelation. If you Open your Bible to the the very last chapter of the very last book. The beginning of chapter 22, you find this vision. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That city that John sees in his vision is the city that Zechariah prophesies the coming of. He too sees a river of salvation. The cleansing fountain that he mentioned at the beginning of Zechariah 13 now becomes a raging river. Ezekiel saw it as well. 
If you look at Ezekiel's vision of the idealized temple and the end of Ezekiel in chapter 47, he sees water coming up from the foundations, out from the, the altar in the temple and radiating outward. Water uh, flowing to the east into the Dead Sea so that that Dead Sea becomes a sea of life. But here, Zechariah sees more than that. Here, it's not just the, the temple that the water flows from. It is the city that it flows from. And it doesn't just flow to the east. It also flows to the west as well. This idea of overflowing abundance of salvation, of grace emanating from the city of peace. We see the Lord coming as king. that He will rule and reign over the earth when he returns recognized universally as the only true God, His name revered as the only name. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 35, it was said to Moses, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. And here Zechariah sees the time when the Lord steps upon the earth and is acknowledged as its sole creator, as its sole ruler. But then something interesting happens. It's not just that, that God appears and God is exalted. God appears, but then He, in turn, exalts the city. And the way that Zechariah describes it is interesting. He sees it as a kind of flattening out of everything else. Like everything else, all of these mountains reduced as if they are plains now. But Jerusalem remains high. Jerusalem remains aloft. And, and he makes the point of giving all of its... Uh, pre-conquest boundaries. Jerusalem is restored in its fullness, and then it is elevated to a place of prominence over the entire world. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, had foretold the restoration of Jerusalem in this way, and Zechariah sees it happening when the Lord returns. Jerusalem is raised up over all the earth. Its preeminence is established over the world. And so Christ reigns and His people reign with Him as it was prophesied. And the effects of His blessed rule are incredible. And the implications of the raising of Jerusalem are worth meditating on. What message does this send even to ancient people as they contemplate Jerusalem preeminence? Perhaps the most important message to them would be Jerusalem will never have to fight again. No one will ever again come against the city. No one will ever again lay siege to the city. It will now be impossible. This place will be the city of peace indeed. There's more to it that to that in this vision because not only will the city be impossible to lay siege to, but the nations who once besieged it will be converted from corrupting attackers to fellow worshipers that those who were not His people will be called His people, and Jerusalem will dwell in security. In other words, it is Christ's coming, Christ's struggle, the work that Jesus does from start to finish that brings security to the new Jerusalem, to the city of His people. So, as we reflect on this, and we try to ask ourselves, what does this pattern of Christ's second coming mean to us now? There are a couple of things I want you to think about, to hold on to. The first one is one that we come back to again and again, but, but we come back to it because we need to. 
it's this, that salvation is not by our own strength. And it's also not by the strength of the church. When the vision begins, and we see the state that we're in, and we see the state that the city is in under its own power, that's not good. It turns out that we as individuals do not have the power to save ourselves. But also, we collectively, as a community, as a people, as a church, also do not have the power to save ourselves. If you recognize your own weakness and say to yourself, I can't do it alone, what I need is a community of righteous people whose good example will rub off on me and then I will lead a better life and then I will be acceptable in the eyes of God, that's not going to work any better than trying to save yourself on your own. Because even the city of God, the people together, determined to be faithful in this vision to succumb and are only saved by the appearance of their Savior. It is only when the Lord steps in that the tide of the battle changes. And that should be a reminder to us always. There's no strength in you that will save you, but there's no strength in us apart from Him that will save you either. All of us together are looking to Him for salvation. That's one thing to remember. Another thing to remember is this, that that even we, even those who are in Christ, who have repented of our sins, who are together in this body, the church, even we will be corrected and disciplined as children for our sin, and we will be tested to purify our faith. I said last week, you will be scattered. And the hope is that those who are scattered are gathered in the church. But even here, we will be tested and our impurities will be rooted out. We will have setbacks and struggles. All of this, though, just serves to demonstrate our inability to save ourselves. If it weren't this way, it might be easy to think that all that was necessary for us to save ourselves was to clean up our act. But all we needed to do was get serious about our faith. All we needed to do was was stop being commitment-phobic and make a commitment. But actually, much more than that is required. That alone can never save us. But these failures, again and again, remind us of our weakness. And as Christ said to the Apostle Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. And when he says made perfect, he means in the sense of coming to fullness or completeness. Like it is in weakness particularly, it is especially in weakness that my power is manifested. Because in your knowledge of your weakness, you will see my power without any qualification. You will look back and know, I did it, not you. Because you got to the point where you realized you couldn't do it. You got to the point when you saw defeat was inevitable. You got to the point when you saw that even the church was succumbing and there was no hope. And you realized, we're going to lose. And then I stepped in and everything changed and the world was transformed. And when you look back, you'll never look back and think, we did it. You'll always look back and realize, I did it for you, through you, and in you. Jesus not only saves us from that siege, He also exalts us. He lifts us up. He makes us what we were made to be. 
Oftentimes, we imagine that the good news of the gospel is just like what you don't have to endure because of Christ. That the good news of the gospel is that it saves us from destruction. But the reality is the good news of the gospel is what it saves us for. That Christ saves us for a fullness to our createdness, to our humanity, and that he elevates and exalts and glorifies us. So we will have fullness. And in Christ, we will have peace and we will have security. But we will have these things only through him. So as we contemplate a vision like this and we allow its mysteries to remain largely mysterious to us, hold on to this. That in this vision, as complex as it seems, what we see is that our struggle will end in victory and the victory will be won by Christ for us. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.